from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As we continue to mark 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we speak to historian and author Gerald Horn about the loose talk versus reality of nuclear weapons. Finland, which borders Russia, is considering a very dangerous and provocative move. And recall that the possibility of such helped to trigger the current conflict in Ukraine. And whether it's economist Jeffrey Sachs being silenced, Kanye West being canceled, or the letter retraction heard around the world, journalist John Jeter is in the house to discuss culture and media. When it comes to the Progressive Caucus and how quickly they withdrew this letter, but this is really a huge deal. This is a tectonic shift in our political debate and our democracy. All that and much more on today's show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for October 28th, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, announced Thursday that it will carry out an independent verification of Russian allegations that Ukraine is constructing a so-called dirty bomb at two sites in that country. The inspections follow a series of calls by Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu to peer defense officials in the U.S. and throughout NATO, warning of the alleged creation of a bomb with radioactive materials. Ukraine officials denied the creation of the weapon and, as they have throughout the conflict, accused Russia of the same illegal deed. Analysts compare this current dangerous moment in the conflict in Ukraine to the dirty war against the Assad government in Syria where the U.S. announced a so-called red line for the use of chemical weapons by the Assad government as a precondition for the U.S. to directly intervene in the conflict, which Assad and his allies, including Russia, were winning. After that red line pronouncement, at least two alleged chemical attacks occurred there, which prompted strikes on Syria by the U.S. and NATO, though later U.N. chemical weapons inspectors disputed that such chemical attacks even occurred. And also, independent investigators presented evidence that the attacks were staged by anti-government fighters. Meanwhile, the organization Beyond Nuclear warned on Wednesday that nuclear power plants with nuclear waste like those in Ukraine are inherently dangerous. Quote, like all nuclear power plants, Ukraine's reactors are pre-deployed nuclear weapons. End quote, said a statement issued by the organization, which is based here in the D.C. area in Tacoma Park, Maryland. The group added that because of these dangers, nuclear plants should be permanently discontinued. And what continues to reverberate beyond the war in Ukraine is a letter issued and then retracted this week by 30 members of the Progressive Caucus of the U.S. House of Representatives 
The letter called on the Biden administration to add talks and diplomacy to the tens of billions in aid and weapons sent to Ukraine. It said in part, quote, as legislators responsible for the expenditure of tens of billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars in military assistance in the conflict, we believe such involvement in this war also creates a responsibility for the United States to seriously explore all possible avenues, including direct engagement with Russia to reduce harm and support Ukraine in achieving a peaceful settlement, end quote. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, told Breakthrough News that the letter's retraction is a sign of how both Republicans and Democrats are reluctant to rock the boat of the military-industrial complex. I think it shows the power of this military-industrial congressional complex that is always looking for another war and When we wound down the war in Afghanistan, well, lo and behold, there was Ukraine. And, you know, while there are members of the right wing Republican Party that are calling to stop the blank check to Ukraine, many of them are saying our real adversary is China. So we have two war parties in the pockets of the weapons companies that make billions and billions of dollars from this conflict. More on the nuclear threat, Washington, and the Ukraine war later in the show. Now, as COP27, the U.N. Climate Summit is set to get underway November 6th in Egypt, two new reports include dire warnings about the climate crisis. A United Nations report warns that planetary heating could rise a catastrophic 2.9 Celsius by the end of the century without immediate action from the world's largest polluters to dramatically rein in carbon emissions and transition away from fossil fuels. Such a rise would mean rapid melting of ice sheets and accelerated sea rise that would dislocate more than 800 million people. The UN's World Meteorological Organization also revealed this week that atmospheric levels of the three main greenhouse gases fueling global heating all hit record highs in 2021. Carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide reached unprecedented levels. Climate scientist Bill McGuire tweeted in response to the new figures, quote, far from emissions being brought under control, they are actually accelerating. This is the worst possible news. You can say goodbye to 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius, too, he added, referring to the Paris Agreement targets for avoiding projected worst-case climate scenarios. Meanwhile, fossil fuel corporations are not slowing down, but rather ramping up business. European oil giants Shell and Total reported massive profits Thursday as energy prices fuel inflation across the continent. And a new analysis by Food and Water Watch warned the White House to scrap its plans to export billions of cubic meters of frack gas to Europe annually. Quote, the White House vision for delivering gas to Europe will serve to deliver climate chaos across the globe at a moment when we simply cannot build new fossil fuel facilities at all. End quote, said Food and Water Watch Research Director Amanda Starbuck. She added, quote, The White House must work with political leaders across the globe to find a safer alternative than doubling down on dirty gas. And in policing and Black Lives Matter news, a recent Senate report found that 1,000 people who died in U.S. prisons and jails in 2021 went 
unaccounted for by the Department of Justice. The updated survey means that the number of deaths in custody were twice as high as previously reported. The study found that the DOJ failed to effectively implement the Death in Custody Reporting Act of 2013, which requires states that accept certain federal funding to report deaths in their state prisons and jails to the Justice Department. The organization MoveOn.org is distributing a petition to drop the charges against Jordan Young, a black Albany, New York native who was unjustifiably stopped while walking his dog January 24, 2022, then shot multiple times and nearly killed while in the throes of a mental health crisis. Police say that Young, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, lunged at them with a knife. The Albany County District Attorney is pursuing charges against Jordan, who, because of the shooting, has endured multiple surgeries, spent weeks on ventilators, and experienced the loss of crucial organ functioning that will likely be permanent and life-altering. His medical condition remains dire. He is currently rehospitalized indefinitely for issues attributed to the shooting. According to the petition, he was arraigned from his hospital bed, only able to speak through a tracheotomy valve in his neck. Initially remanded without bail, restrained to his hospital bed by shackles, prohibited from having private consultations with his attorney, and restricted to having visitation in the hospital for a mere two hours a day with only his wife and no other family members. The petition says the district attorney's office has also refused to explore alternatives to incarceration, which could be achieved through a plea bargaining process. The organization MoveOn.org is distributing the petition titled Drop All Charges Against Jordan Young. And police in the U.S. kill roughly three people each day. Even more are wounded. Some of the other cases where communities are demanding justice and accountability include for 15-year-old Juan Carlos Bajorquez, killed by the Glendale, Arizona police. 17-year-old Eric Cantu, shot while eating a hamburger in a fast food parking lot by San Antonio police officer James Brennan, who was fired and charged with aggravated assault but Cantu's family and community are calling for attempted murder charges. And Lovell Lane, arrested October 2nd by the Spartanburg, South Carolina police for allegedly walking in the street, and he was found dead in custody six hours later. His aunt, Roxanne Thomas, and his mother, Beverly Lane Reese, spoke to Breakthrough News. I'm not saying that him being black makes it the way it is, but I'm almost positive if this happened to someone else that was white, I'm going to say it like how it was, there would be more outcry and more more forthcoming with what happened. This is a vicious cycle, and somebody got to stand up. Either you stand for something or you fall for anything, and I'm going to stand up for Lavelle. Family members are still waiting for answers about Lavelle's death and for video from the jail. In economic news, Multipolarista.com is reporting that the Biden administration is imposing aggressive sanctions that aim to, quote unquote, kneecap China's tech sector and block China from importing most semiconductors, machines to create chips and supercomputer parts. Editor Ben Norton cites a report by former Pentagon official John Bateman, who acknowledges that the new economic war is 
quote unquote, disproportionate and a form of economic containment. So he says that this is a massive escalation of the U.S. economic war on China. He says the primary damage to China will be economic. And he showed he said that these these policies from the Biden administration were imposed with only after limited consultation with partner countries and companies, proving that the U.S. government's quest to hobble China ranks well above concerns about the diplomatic or economic repercussions. Continuing to cite Bateman's report, Norton said that the United States is trying to pressure allies to join its new Cold War on China and that fears that these new Cold War policies could backfire have already come true. Washington's rapid attempt to decouple the U.S. economy from China is taking a toll on U.S. universities. At least 1,400 scientists of Chinese descent have left U.S. research institutions and instead gone to China, according to a report published this October by academics at Harvard, Princeton, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And finally, in culture and media, I caught up with activist Linda Sarsour, who was at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, this week for a screening of Brooklyn, Inshallah, about the campaign to elect the first Arab member of the New York City Council. Sarsour, a Palestinian-American born in Brooklyn who rose to fame as an organizer of the original Women's March, expressed dire concern about the fresh attacks on human rights in this country, such as voting rights and reproductive rights. I asked her about the concern that the United States is veering toward fascism as she also encourages people to get out and vote. All right. So I just saw the film. Very inspiring. And like I said, you know, you said two things that seem incompatible for me Mm -hmm. because you talked about voting to reduce harm, but also the fact that we're living in an increasingly fascist society. So can we can we reduce harm enough through voting? I think for me, the way I think about politics in American democracy is that it's all local. Um, On a local level, we've actually seen um, across the country where there has been some progress on issues of criminal justice, um, bail reform. We've seen some access to services for immigrant communities. Uh, We've seen some increased funding for some public schools. It really just depends, some affordable housing in some districts across the country. So I say to people, you know, we are distracted by federal politics, but vote local. A lot of the reproductive rights and issues like that that are being stripped from us are on the state level. And so if we, at least in the meantime, focus on our immediate vicinity as we find other more revolutionary ways to tone down the fascism that we are going towards in this country. It's again, it's hard for me as of someone who's uh, the ways in which the kind of theory of change that I have to reconcile those two things. But I've also seen that there is some harm reduction in participating in local elections. Talk about your theory of change. I mean, what, what do you what, what do you think that we really need to do to to not just reduce harm but actually make social change? I think it really lands in solidarity. It lands in us coming together as marginalized people, you know, not allowing people to pin us up against each other, not engaging in oppression Olympics, which is what the opposition wants us to do. They want us to look at each other and say, I'm in more pain than you are, you are in more pain than me, but really, in fact, bring our pain together and translate that into political power. It's all about people power. And I think that this country continues to oppress and oppress and oppress and put us in a state where we don't even feel like we can transform this country. And I believe um, in us and I believe that solidarity is the way to go. Okay, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. 
Sarsar used the event to encourage those in the audience to vote in the upcoming midterm elections. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Back when Eisenhower was the president, golf courses is where most of his time was spent. So I never really listened to what the president said because in general, I believed that the general was politically dead. But he always seemed to know when the muscles were about to be flexed. Because I remember him saying something, mumbling something about a military industrial complex. Americans no longer fight to keep their shores safe just to keep the jobs going in the arms-making workplace. And then they pretend to be gripped by some sort of political reflex. But all they're doing is paying dues to the military-industrial complex. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are... Turning the planet to a cemetery. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivan. Well, the UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, announced Thursday that it will carry out an independent verification of Russian allegations that Ukraine is constructing a so called dirty bomb at two sites in that country. And with me to discuss what appears to be escalating danger in the war in Ukraine, as well as less reported hotspots around the globe, is on the ground's geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn. He is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than three dozen books, including most recently The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and The Roots of American Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, Gerald, these IAEA inspections follow a series of calls this week by Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shagu to peer defense officials in the U.S. and throughout NATO warning of this alleged creation of a bomb with radioactive materials. And Ukraine officials denied the creation of the weapon and, as they have throughout the conflict, accused Russia of doing the same, making the same kind of weapon. And looking at corporate media, I saw Western leaders dismiss Russia's positions. And on Wednesday, President Biden echoed Ukraine's position, or maybe he was echoing Ukraine's echo of the U.S. position. I don't know. And he said, quote, let me just say Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if it were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. And then he went on, I'm not guaranteeing that it's a false flag operation yet. We don't know. It would be a serious, serious mistake, end quote. So, you know, we have the two major nuclear superpowers talking at each other and not to each other about basically a nuclear weapon and, you know, just kind of leading us higher on this escalation ladder on this, what we've acknowledged is the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis which we know was only averted because of the restraint of the Soviet military and because the U.S. and the Soviet Union were were talking to each other, you know, not only about Cuba, but about the U.S. removing U.S. missiles from Turkey along the then Soviet Union border. So anyway, I want to get your top line thoughts. Well, with regard to the so-called dirty bomb, there is a striking article on the website of Asia Times, a respected periodical by a former leading Indian diplomat 
And he gives credence to this idea that Moscow has been putting forward with regard to the possibility of a dirty bomb being exploded. Certainly, other signs are quite troubling and disturbing. Uh, For example, uh, you may have heard that there are news reports that Finland, which is in the process of joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is reportedly considering having nuclear weapons placed in its backyard. Uh, That is to say that Finland, which borders Russia, is considering a very dangerous and provocative move. And recall that the possibility of such helped to trigger the current conflict in Ukraine. Likewise, we have seen these other reports about a few thousand U.S. soldiers in neighboring Romania with a mission that remains unclear, although it reminds me of the words of former late Pentagon chief Donald Rumsfeld, who suggested in the early 21st century that if the U.S. military has a problem, the way to deal with it is to enlarge the problem. And certainly that seems to be the dynamic that's at play now. That is to say, with things not going exactly according to plan for Washington on the battlefield in Ukraine, the idea is to enlarge the conflict. Certainly, uh, this would be opening the gates of hell. You know, it's interesting that you you mentioned things not going well on the battlefield because it seems that a lot of this uh, conflict, it's, it's actually alarming that the possibility of using nuclear weapons is kind of tied up in this ongoing information war, this, the PR war. And part of that PR war is about who's winning and who's losing. And so you hear a lot of Western officials as they denounce or dismiss the idea of this dirty bomb, they say, well, you know, Russia would use this dirty bomb because they're losing, not acknowledging the realities of what was the special military operation, which hasn't officially ended, but has sort of ended. And Russia has called up more than 200,000 reservists and how what has happened on the battlefield is constantly misreported in Western media, perhaps to justify this continuing billions and billions of arms that, you know, the claim that Ukraine is somehow winning the war. So it just seems to me especially dangerous to have something potentially, you know, humanity ending like nuclear weapons tied up in this information war, the uh, play of words, the battle over, uh, basically telling the U.S. population, the population in Europe lies basically about the conflict to kind of keep it going. And so, you know, Russia says that, you know, from from their vantage point, they're saying that, you know, Ukraine is desperate now with this new phase of the war and that, you know, because Russia has taken off the gloves. Well, I think part of the disturbing news actually comes out of Washington. I'm referring to the abortive attempt by the Congressional Progressive Caucus to press the White House to engage in more serious diplomacy. Uh, As you know, that was repudiated by the leadership of the Progressive Caucus. They said that it was a staff error that this letter was circulated before its time. But in any case, I think it helps to expose the weaknesses on this side of the Atlantic. That is to say that 
we should all pile on, understandably, with regard to criticizing the progressive caucus. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the Democrats and Republicans, there is considerable momentum for heightening this conflict. We look at the labor movement, the AFL-CIO, they've yet to break with the Cold War. And somebody forgot to tell them that the Soviet Union collapsed 30 odd years ago. And they're still involved in these sorts of escapades abroad that do nothing to assist the living standards of the U.S. working class, not to mention the global working class. We see that the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, in the form of leader Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens, has pushed legislation that would punish African countries that do not join the sanctions crusade against Russia. We see that the peace movement is divided with regard to this particular conflict. We see that intellectuals are divided. So given that lineup, it's not surprising that the Progressive Caucus would come up short. But alas, sadly, uh, since we're faced with one of the most significant and serious crises since the October crisis with regard to nuclear conflict with Cuba in October 1962, uh, this is an inopportune moment for this to occur. Right. And speaking of the letter and the sorry state of the anti-war or peace movement here, you know, I think that what you're saying was emphasized even more for me this week because I heard several interviews by people, I think, who consider themselves progressives and anti-war on corporate and progressive media this week. And I was really struck by how even professing to be against war and professing to be wanting to see peace in this conflict, they, even in recognizing how NATO has gone right up to Russia's border in the last uh, 30 years against the promises made that that would not happen, even acknowledging that they still say that, you know, there's no excuse for Russia to have gone in as if, you know, the United States in the same situation or or even less um, serious uh, during 60 years ago wouldn't, you know, not even acknowledging that the U.S. was willing to kind of blow up the whole world because of some some missiles in Cuba. Uh, and this is a 1,300-mile border between Russia and Ukraine. And then now you're mentioning Finland is proposing perhaps doing something on the other side of Russia. Well, in any way, I don't hear any of these people who who profess to be for peace, to profess to profess to understand the conflict, to even acknowledge that this conflict didn't start in February, that for the last eight years, you know, Kiev has been bombing and killing 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine. No acknowledgement that in the weeks leading, before Russia even went in in February, these attacks increased, that, you know, when you see these pictures of the Donbass, some of these cities look like, you know, a hellscape, you know, and we don't really see those pictures of how so much of Eastern Ukraine has been destroyed in the last eight years. Well, in any case, I see why the Progressive Caucus members really had no support from the base, because the support that is there from the real left, they run away from anyway. And there's a further problem as well. As you know, the Biden administration has issued this new so-called a strategy document concerning U.S. foreign policy. And shockingly, the document suggests that Washington should be confronting simultaneously both Russia and China, uh, which is something that not only uh, 
former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has warned against, but also in a recent column in the New York Times, Thomas Friedman did the same thing because I think that they recognize that it's more than a notion to take on one of these powers, but to take on both simultaneously is quite amazing and astonishing. And to that end, uh, Chancellor Schultz in Berlin is headed to China in a few weeks. And that is quite a blow to this new U.S. foreign policy, because obviously he's not on board with regard to to challenging Russia and China China simultaneously. Uh, He will probably be followed by other uh, so-called NATO partners and EU partners of the United States of America. But the bottom line is, is that it's a very dangerous document that's being put forward with hardly any debate and hardly the kind of opposition we would hope for and expect from the Black Caucus and from the Progressive Caucus on Capitol Hill. I hope we do have some time to talk about China and Taiwan and actually some of the other hot spots that don't get the attention in corporate media. But before we switch from Ukraine, I want to ask you about this this one aspect of this nuclear issue. And that is the fact that, you know, I'm sure you remember when we talked about the dirty war in Syria, that there were red lines or a red line put forward by the then Obama administration against the use of chemical weapons. And if the uh, Assad government went past that red line, even though there was no indication that they would or could, you know, want to you know, use chemical weapons against their own people, that line was set up. And wouldn't you know, you know, within months or definitely before the conflict uh, ended, if it's actually ended, there were supposed chemical attacks and which were blamed on the Assad government. And so uh, some people looking at the Ukraine situation say that, okay, by putting out this uh, red line against any kind of nuclear tactical uh, weapon in Ukraine that the U.S. is basically signaling to the Zelensky regime that okay, um, this is your cue to create a uh, a nuclear false flag to create a situation where you know you could use a so-called dirty bomb and then blame it on Russia and then therefore invite in the intervention by the U.S. and NATO. So some people are making that comparison because of the actions that they've already seen by the. Zelensky Zelensky regime in terms of, you know, uh, shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear plant and then blaming it on Russia or basically taking credit for blowing up the bridge connecting uh, Russia to the Crimea Peninsula, but then taking it back and and blaming Russia. Uh, You know, still no one's uh, come out and take uh, taking credit for blowing up the uh, Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, But, you know, there was certainly opportunity by just certain parties that we've discussed before. So anyway, I just wanted to get your take on that before we have time maybe to move on to some other areas. Well, let's try to do both. I mean, I think that this Ukraine conflict has given off uh, really damaging ripples uh, throughout the European continent. We see what amounts to a kind of Zelensky curse, uh, Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister driven out of office, uh, President Macron in France uh, suffering parliamentary losses a few months ago during the French elections, the kind of circus you see in London with Boris Johnson, then Liz Truss, and now Rishi Sunak, 
uh, taking the prime minister's helm, all connected more or less to the shockwaves from Ukraine in terms of the driving up of the price of energy, which then helps to fuel inflation, fuel inflation with regard to food in particular, uh, sending people into the streets, the equivalent of a general strike uh, erupting on the streets of France just a few days ago. And so one would hope and think that the North Atlantic countries would want to engage over time in diplomacy, but alas, that does not seem to be the case. Well, speaking of diplomacy, maybe we can spend some time on the peace talks occurring in South Africa to try and come to some resolution on this very violent ongoing conflict in Ethiopia between the government and the Tigray and the TPLF. Well, the good news is that the talks are apparently underway, that heavyweights like the former uh, leader of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, and the former leader of Nigeria, uh, President Obasanjo, are both on the scene. But what concerns me is that it's unclear whether Eritrea will be represented at these peace talks because they've been a major player. Recall that part of the problem is that the Tigrayans, who are only about 6 to 7% of the population of Ethiopia, but once played a preeminent role in the central government in Addis Ababa, uh, had conflicts during their reign with Eritrea. And Eritrea now is seeking payback by bringing down the hammer on Tigray. So to the extent that Eritrea is not at the table, it's unclear to me how any kind of reasonable or viable agreement can be brokered. All right. We'll have time to go into more detail as we have in the past. But, you know, just hearing some reports on Pacifica this week that I think had a very distorted view of the conflict. You know, I wanted to make sure our listeners knew that the the government is a democratically elected government of Ethiopia and that they were basically attacked by the Tigrayan forces. And I don't know if that's a lot of people are really understanding the way this conflict began with the the attack on the Ethiopian barracks and so many uh, soldiers killed uh, by the Tigrayan forces and how these Tigrayan have been uh, backed by the U.S. and other Western governments, either overtly or not overtly. And it hasn't really been really explained to a lot of people in terms of the, the integrity of the Ethiopian government being respected, their sovereignty being respected, and certainly the Ethiopian community in Washington, D.C., we have to recognize that they've been in the streets with the No More Movement and basically, you know, speaking out against the warped view, especially in corporate media, in the way that this conflict has been portrayed. And I, you know, there's so many things that I know that we uh, don't have time to uh, cover, but hopefully in the coming weeks we can catch up because there's so many things happening in terms of Palestine, some reports of like a new, a new intifada, real uprising against the severe repression and murders of Palestinian people and especially children there, uh, imprisoning children, killing children. We haven't talked about the Congress of the Chinese uh, Communist Party. And so there's a lot of things we have to get to, and hopefully we can get to them in the coming weeks. But is there something that you wanted to say before we end it? Well, uh, I think I would be remiss if I did not make another point about the Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and 
the hostility that's been directed uh, at China. And once again, the hostility uh, has infected uh, many circles. Certainly, it infects the leadership of both the Republican and the Democratic parties politically. Uh, Certainly, with regard to intellectual circles, uh, there is uh, quite a shocking amount of hostility uh, to the People's Republic of China. And then there's a kind of backlash domestically. Uh, What I'm referring to is that the notorious sheriff of Los Angeles County, Mr. Villanueva, has charged that the anti-Asian violence that is an outgrowth of this anti-China hysteria is basically being directed and perpetrated by young black men. And this is putting a target on the back of this vulnerable population. And it also shows you how dangerous this moment actually is. Wow. Yes. And earlier in the show, in our headlines, we talked about the new economic war against China in terms of the U.S. trying to sanction and control China's access to semiconductors. And so whether it's economic, whether it's this war on you know young black men in Los Angeles or the ongoing war against so many Chinese American or Chinese academics working here, who are many of whom are leaving to go to China, leaving or go back to China, there is a lot afoot that many Americans aren't made aware of in terms of the U.S. and it's, you know, what some people call new Cold War against China. But anyway, uh, we will continue these conversations. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they've lied. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Resting on their conscience, eating their inside. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. It's freedom. It's freedom time now Time to get free Forgive yourselves up now It's freedom Said it's freedom time Yo, there's a war in the mind Over territory for the dominion Who will dominate the opinions Schisms and isms Keeping us in forms of religion Conforming our vision to the world Church's decision Trapped in a section Submitted to committee election Moral infection Epidemic lies and deception Insurrection of the highest possible order distort and I take recorders from hearing like underwater beyond the borders find ascending disorder bound by the strategy of systemic depravity heaviest gravity head first in the cavity without a bottom a fate worse than Sodom what's got him drunk off the spirits truth comes we can't hear it when you've been this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Ivarum, and it's the fourth show of the month for us, so it's time for our extended look at culture and media, and I'm happy to be joined again by our media critic, John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer finalist and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us here in D.C. Welcome back to D.C., John. I'm mostly glad to be back, Esther. (laughs) Okay, well, there's a lot happening. There's so many, too many news stories 
for us to cover in our short period of time, but we're looking at a letter written by the Progressive Caucus this week, the kind of ongoing coverage of and discussion and framing of the war in Ukraine, and, and also just what public figures are allowed to say, basically. That's the running theme, I guess, for this week. What people are allowed to say about the reality they see around them. So where do you want to start? Yeah, I think this letter is it's a big deal, right? I mean, if you really think about what's going on here, a group of self-proclaimed progressives in the House of Representatives wrote a letter to the President of the United States urging him to do what he should be doing anyway, right? Which is clearly within his job description, which is diplomacy to negotiate or at least attempt to negotiate a ceasefire with Russia and Ukraine to save lives, to save money. And the rejection of that letter and how the so-called progressives were cowed, which I guess speaks to just their level of progressivism, but it also speaks to the atmosphere in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital. I mean, think about this for a second. I mean, this is what we're getting up there, I guess, Esther. But in our day, even during the Reagan era, there was open debate among congressmen and women. There was open debate on Capitol Hill. There were cold warriors and there were people who were fervently against the Cold War. But you heard both views, right? You don't even hear this other viewpoint. Now, it is denounced as unpatriotic, as subversive, as threatening to national security. And the reason for that is, I think clearly, this bipartisan political class, which is making money out of war, frankly, right? That's what the war in Ukraine is about. It's about money for people who can't find anywhere else to invest their money, right? We don't make anything of value. Uh, And so they need war to make money, to make profit. And they don't want their apple cart upset by this, what they see as this careless talk about diplomacy and a ceasefire, right? Or as Chris Rock said, ain't no money in the cure. The money's in the treatment, right? So this thing is, this is really a dangerous moment where speech is stifled, even among our political class who we elect to debate. So this is a, this might seem like a small thing, although very telling when it comes to the Progressive Caucus and how quickly they withdrew this letter. But this is really a huge deal. This is a tectonic shift in our political debate and our democracy. And I think that it's important to recognize that the letter itself uh, really was so... Milk toast. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they called the war in Ukraine, this courageous uh, fighting and heroic sacrifice and uh, to deal a historic military defeat to Russia and calling Ukraine a democratic society. When we know that opposition to Zelensky has been jailed, imprisoned, that unions have been made illegal. This is the same Congress that, you know, allowed a tour of the Azov Battalion in the United States in September. They were here in D.C. saying, you know, we're all you're all Azov now. Right. So we're living in a really it's overused, but very Orwellian time. And it's very dangerous because it's not just not acknowledging the danger, but it's it's not acknowledging the the danger when you're dealing with another, the other major nuclear power. It's when you not even respecting them for being the other nuclear powers. This whole 
information war, this PR war is tied up into the the war in a way that people don't even recognize what's really happening. And that's what's so dangerous. And it's, it's impossible for us to come up with solutions to our problems when we don't identify our problem. And I, I say right. that to say, and the rest of the world is very familiar, but they, they are intimately aware of what's going on, which is that the power is shifting from the from the West, particularly NATO, to the East, particularly China and Russia. And you see Saudi Arabia applying for a membership to the BRICS countries. I mean, that's that's extraordinary. I never thought I'd see the day where Saudi Arabia would basically defect from the orbit of the United States. And they're seeking to join, to partner with the Soviet Union and China, which is also being aggressively sought out by every country from Argentina to the African countries, which refuse to denounce Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the United States, I mean, very few people, I, I don't, I doubt if three in 100 people understand what's really going on uh, with this war and that the the power is really shifting or that Europe is in such dire straits right now. You know, we just don't have the information to work our way out of our problems. Well, I spoke to Professor Gerald Horn earlier in the show, and we kind of mentioned the letter briefly. And one of the things that he brought up is the fact that not wanting to just totally beat up on these progressives and to really acknowledge the far right atmosphere, not only in D.C., but across this country. And when I think about the uh, two interviews I heard this week, one with Phyllis Bennis on Democracy Now!, one with Norman Solomon on RT and Sputnik, I realize that a lot of people who, you know, consider themselves progressive, people who have been anti-war, who've spoken out against U.S. imperialism, people who even know, both of them know about NATO's push right to the border of Russia. They know about the ways that the U.S. and NATO provoke this war, but yet they will say there's still no excuse for Russia's invasion. And I was accused by a listener of being, you know, like they said something about, you know, your beloved Russia, because we try to talk about both sides. I know I don't have a right to tell Russia, Russian people that they have to put up with missiles and potentially nuclear weapons on their border with Ukraine, this 1300 mile border they share with Ukraine. I don't have a right to tell Vladimir Putin, the Russian people, that they have to be okay with that. And I think even Yeltsin, the U.S. puppet in the 1990s, told the U.S. then that no Russian leader would accept Ukraine being a part of NATO and being having this these ty- this type of weaponry within a you know a, a few minute minutes range to to Moscow on their border that even the US puppet told them back in the 90s that it's not just him that no Russian leader would accept that so here we are more than 20 years later and people in these interviews they can't see how Russia has a right to to its level of safety that Putin expressed very clearly to Biden before this invasion began. And, you know, there are all these other pieces to it, the 14,000 Russian-speaking people who have died in the Donbass since 2014. They are disappeared from the conversation. The attacks by Kiev on eastern Ukraine in the last eight years, that's disappeared from the conversation. I mean, Norman Solomon said, well, this invasion hasn't made Russia any safer. And so, I don't know. I know 
Well, what, how do you feel about that? I disagree with Norman Solomon entirely. Uh, it's made them much safer, and it would have been a dereliction of duty if they hadn't invaded Ukraine. Because if they had not invaded Ukraine, they were next up. That's been the plan by the United States since Libya, right? Again, rent-seeking. The economy doesn't work. They have to go and they have to start wars and steal other people's stuff. That's what Libya was about. That's what that's what started this. Putin has been planning for this since Libya. After he yeah. saw what happened to Libya, he understood that the United States game plan was to expand its kleptocracy to the, the smashing grabs all over the world, right? And that it's like Mike Tyson used to say, everybody has a plan till they get smacked in their nose. Russia understood that. Russia understands that. Putin understands that. And people, I would encourage people to listen. Now, I, you know, none of us, very few of us speak Russian, so you, you're a hostage to the translation. But I think the translations are pretty faithful. And Putin, I mean, you can say what you want. He is, number one, he's not a dumb man. Number two, he's not a liar. He does not bluff. What he says is what he does, right? Uh, and the and the other thing, and I just think this is so important. Well, which I, translation are you talking about? You've just finished your thought. Uh, which which Because he's made a number of... Uh, important speeches, including this week at the, I think it's called the Valdai Club in Moscow. He, he's, he's, yeah, he's made a number of speeches since the war began. And each one, I think, the, the one he made, I think it was, I think it was last month, uh, at the, to celebrate the succession of the territories in the Donbass region that had voted to join the Russian Federation. That was really, uh, a compelling speech where he talked about the the history of European settler colonialism. The oh, yes, damage yes. Iraq. I mean, that yes. was just a powerful speech. And let me say something else, too. And I think this is very important for Americans to hear. You know, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And we might have this vision of Putin. But I can tell you something that I know for a fact, and all over Africa especially, right, Vladimir Putin is certainly respected in a way that no American politician is uh, all over Africa. And so people need to understand that we might be choosing sides, but the rest of the world is not choosing the same side. Right. And, you know, I have to say, when I think, when I interact with a lot of the young people in my life, uh, these are young, you know, African-American young men. I mean, they think of Putin as a G. They think of him as someone who, as you said, says what he means and means what he says. But we don't have a lot of time today. And I know that when we talk about, you know, hearing these types of interviews with pundits or people who we think of as being on the left and how they aren't either allowed to express what they feel or express the facts about this conflict. I think that you wanted to point out a recent discussion where Jeffrey Sachs, who has been outspoken around the U.S. imperialism in this conflict, how he was basically shut down recently in a discussion with a New York Times reporter. Yeah, it was a panel with the New York Times chief diplomatic, I think, reporter, Steve uh, Stephen Erlanger. And I'm not exactly sure the subject, but Jeffrey Sachs starts to elaborate on uh, U.S. imperialism and says that it's the most violent country in the world since 1950. And he's immediately shut down. Uh, I mean, you have to understand Jeffrey Sachs is a Columbia University professor. I think at one time he was the youngest professor tenured at Harvard University, and, you know, an economist who helped uh, reshape the Soviet Union for better or for worse. Uh, and he was shut down by Steve Erlanger like a child. 
you know. Well, who- I think we have a clip, and this is how the that clip was described and presented on the Jimmy Dore show. So I'm going to play that, and then we can talk about it. The most violent country in the world in the 19th century, by far, was perhaps the most democratic or second most democratic, and that was Britain. You can be democratic at home and ruthlessly imperial abroad. The most violent country in the world since 1950 has been the United States. It's Jeff, been by let's, far Jeffrey, stop more, now. Let's, let's, <laughs> Jeffrey, I, I'm, Jeffrey, I'm your moderator, and it's enough. Okay, I'm done. So that's uh, at a thing called the Democracy Forum. <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs started to tell the truth about the United States imperialism, and the guy from the New York Times shut him down right away. Okay, so that's the clip, and I guess it's making the round somewhat on some of the online shows, John. Yeah, it's really stunning. I, I'm not a big fan of Jimmy Doris, but he hits the nail right on the head with this one to see just the, the shutting down of the conversation. We can't even talk about these things. It's because they don't have a counterfactual anymore. They don't have a counter argument to these very obvious arguments. Right. But of course, here on our show, uh, we can. And that's one of the beauties of Pacifica Radio and on the ground. And we have to hold on to that the space uh, to have a free voice, uh, despite the attacks on Pacifica, the assault on Pacifica is very important because you can see that uh, people in corporate media like Stephen Erlanger at the New York Times, their first reflex is to say, uh, that's enough. <laughs> you know, right. Shut that down. All right. So finally, another person, someone else who's getting shut down for different reasons, I suppose, is Kanye West. So we want to end our conversation about Kanye West. He was quoted on a few different platforms making comments that are anti-Semitic or maybe, you know, the details, John, and you can just we can wind up with that. Well, I, I don't follow Kanye that closely. I, I used to be a big fan of his music and am and, and no longer. So I only sort of hear about him tangentially. I know that he, I guess, tweeted in response to, is he still known as P. Diddy? I guess He's P. known as Ye. No, but, but, P, but P, uh, P. Diddy, oh. I think, had tweeted him saying that he didn't want to work with him because he was controlled by Jews. And Kanye quoted, Kanye, Kanye tweeted back, I believe, that he was going to go DEFCON 3 on the Jews, which is a silly thing to say, right? Well, let I, me let me see. Who 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 made the first comment? You said I think, that... I think P. Diddy made the first comment, although he erased it from Twitter, but it was Kanye in response to P. Diddy's claim that he was controlled by Jews. That uh, Kanye West was. Yeah, that Kanye West was. He was trying to assert his independence, and he said something about going DEFCON 3 on the Jews, which is silly, I think, entirely silly. I don't know if anyone should be threatened by Kanye. But again, I don't really approve of any kind of anti-Semitism. But I think it's interesting. Kanye has made, has, Kanye has made or Ye, has made a number of threat, a number of comments about Blacks, a number of them which are disturbing and vile and, 
insulting. Yeah, and then he went to the a recent fashion show with the White Lives Matter. Right. And no one right? and, and now he's on uh he's on some show, some podcast talking about how white men are really the most degree people in the country. <laughs> and no one seems to cancel him because of that. But now he's being booted out of every company that he's had some kind of stake in. And it's just really kind of uh, extraordinary to see sort of whose pain, whose suffering is important and whose is not. You know, I, I, I'm i not uh, by any stretch of the imagination someone who has some conspiracy theory concerning the Jews, right? I think, and in, th- in fact, I think it's in most cases, it's probably counterproductive to separate them out from a white identity in general, right? It's the white identity that actually is our enemy as black people, as free people, as working people. Uh, but I don't understand this sort of, furor over these silly comments. One, the latest of a, of a string of silly comments made by Kanye West, but yet this seems to be the deal breaker. And this seems serious to me. I mean, it seems like he's really in some very serious financial jeopardy here because of these statements uh, he made yeah. about Jews. Uh, but yet none of his none of his statements about blacks, which are vile, about our choosing to be slaves, None of that seems to oh, have. Oh, wow. That seems and to I have think he had a one. clothing line at one point with the Confederate flag, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, that was years ago, but that was maybe the beginning of the 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 evidence of some type of breakdown happening. But anyway, I've been speaking with our media critic, John Jeter. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. And Esther. welcome back again. Thank you. Glad to be back, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Ivarum. Special thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Work For Peace by Gil Scott Heron, War In The Mind by Lauren Hill, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you so much to listeners who have gotten on board with us and joined our Patreon page. We are a totally independent operation, independent journalism uh, produced here from Washington, D.C. We don't have any corporate backing. You see, we don't have any advertising and we don't want any. We want to be supported by our listeners and by the people. So please, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash on the ground show and uh, become a member on Patreon. Uh, That's the best way because I can send you automatically an email every time we post the show, whenever we post bonus content. You can also go to the website on thegroundshow.org and click on the donate now or donate uh, support button. And it will tell you all ways you can give, including PayPal, Anyway, thanks so much, everyone, for listening and supporting, and can't wait to bring you next week's show.